Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. All right, everybody. Well, hopefully by now you're in Acts chapter 20, and we continue on in our series in the book of Acts. We're just clicking right along. Uh, But before we read the text, I want you to know about the application form for a certain college, and it, it, it contained the question, are you a leader? And one student pondered the question for a long time in view of her high school record. She hadn't been in athletics, and she hadn't gotten any other real scholarly achievements and no student offices, so she honestly answered the question, no, uh, not, a, not, a, not a leader. During the waiting period, which always accompanies such an application process, she wondered, did I do the right thing? Should I just have adjusted it, you know, and said, yeah, I'm a leader, because, you know, uh, uh, I might not get in. And she said, well, you have to be honest, and I want to be honest, and try, you know. And so she wondered, though, am I not going to get in because I didn't say I was a leader? Much to her amazement, a letter arrived from the registrar's office, and it had the following message. Welcome to our college. A study of our application forms for next year shows that we have 1,452 leaders in the freshman class, and they will certainly need at least one follower. <laughs> so we hear honesty is the best policy, but in that case, her being honest about you know not having been a front out front person kind of person did her well. She got into the college. These days, there are a lot of people that fashion themselves as leaders who have never really learned to be a good follower. And that includes many times people in churches and the body of Christ, despite Jesus himself perfectly modeling for us being under the Father's authority while on earth. He himself said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And because of Jesus, we as his followers can truly speak of leaders needing to be servant leaders. And Adrian Rogers is in heaven now, but I agree with what he said when he taught his series on kingdom authority. He said, you will never be over what God wants you over until you're under what God wants you under. Great quote, isn't it? Today in our text, we're going to see Paul both model and call for servant leadership among those who lead churches. So Acts chapter 20. And today's passage is the final part of what we call the three missionary journeys of Paul from Acts 13 to 20. And it's going to take two messages to cover this passage, because this week we're going to look at the characteristics of true and faithful church leaders. Next week we're going to look at characteristics of false teachers. Let me go ahead and read the text. Acts 20, verses 17 through 38. It says, From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jewish leaders, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you, and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, 
except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. For I know this, after my departure savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch, and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that He said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when He had said these things, Paul knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck, and they kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. So, True or False Part 1, because next week we'll do True or False Part 2. Uh, this week, of course, talking about true and faithful church leaders, and next week, the characteristics of false teachers. So verse 17 tells us that Paul had the Ephesian elders meet him at Miletus. That was 30 miles south of Ephesus. And Paul had, I guess what we would call today a layover <laughs> there before boarding a ship to Syria. We board planes, uh, sometimes ships, but we board planes, they boarded ships, and if the ship wasn't sailing tomorrow, you had a layover, right? So he sent to Ephesus and called the elders to come be with them. Now he had spent three years ministering among them. We've looked at some of that already. And let's think about the identity of the men Paul was talking to. Now, note in verse 17, it says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders, plural, the plural elders of the church, singular. And the elders in verse 17 are also called overseers and shepherds when you get to verse 28. The words are used interchangeably. So there's your fill in the blank there if you can spell it. Interchangeably in Scripture to speak of the same office. I don't know if you've ever seen that connection or not, but uh, putting them together gives us the job description of an elder. So we're not talking about three different offices. Uh, Ephesians 4 would add in pastor-teacher, which is, what is a pastor? A pastor is a shepherd. It's the same phraseology. When we say in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, we could say the Lord is my pastor, because it's the same pastoral setting, shepherding settings. And it was a calling that Paul and the other apostles had beautifully modeled for them. So what do you mean, Danny, when you say that same office and each word is a different description of the role of this uh, leader of the church? Uh, well, the word for elder is presbyteros. You hear presbyterian in there, right? But it's the word presbyteros, and it speaks of their spiritual maturity. An elder is an older. <laughs> you know, we, uh, there's a reason why we set a minimum age for uh, the President of the United States. We 
have come to know in America that you know anybody under 35 simply wouldn't have the life experience yet uh, to take on that formidable job. And so uh, you know it's okay to have a young preacher and and, and young. Uh, uh, people um, serving in different roles, but uh, the scriptures do warn that the pastor should not be new enough that he's a novice and so immature that he's going to fall into the condemnation of the devil. So when you look to church leaders, you're thinking about those saints that have been around a while and are mature and have some life experience under them. So elders, the word for overseer is episkopos. That's where they get episcopalian from, episkopos. Um, and it speaks of how they will lead the people to be about what a church is to be about, the great command and commission. So by the very nature of the word overseer, it's talking about a leader, uh, uh, you know, those that lead the thing, you know. Um, and then the word for shepherd is poiaminen, which speaks of the loving care they will have for the growth of the sheep God has entrusted to their care. And it could be translated pastor. So elder, referring to their age and maturity. Uh, overseer, referring to the fact they are going to be over the work of this local group of believers. Um, and then uh, pastor, that they are shepherd, they're shepherding. And as I've said here many times, um, you know, the, that um, the early churches had not only multiple deacons, they had multiple pastor, shepherd, elder, bishops, etc. And we do here at the tabernacle too. Now, there still has to be a first among equals. Um, Peter was the leader of the Twelve, no doubt about that. Uh, we've already read in the book of Acts about how James and the elders of Jerusalem, Paul submitted himself to James and the elders uh, of Jerusalem. James was the first among equals there. And so Danny Campbell is the first among a great group of godly men who are shepherds, and I'm so thankful for them. And then we also have deacons, so plural elders and plural deacons. All three words occur again in 1 Peter 5. Let me read the first four verses of 1 Peter 5. Therefore, as a fellow elder, Peter writes, and witness to the sufferings of the Messiah, and also a participant in the glory about to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but freely, according to God's will, not for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So, I'm not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church, right? He's the chief shepherd. He's the over-shepherd. He gives under-shepherds. And one of those in a local church context is a first among equals. But nobody's equal to the Lord. He's the, it's His deal. He's the one that said He'll build His church, right? We get to be custodians of it for a time. One of the reasons why it was so important to me when I came was to really just lead out and celebrating how God had worked throughout our church's history, you know. Um, and uh, so thankful to have known both uh, of the uh, former pastors before they died. Um, wished I'd gotten to know the first pastor, but he died before I was even born, you know. <laughs> I think he died in 61, and I was born in 67. But so thankful I got to know R.J. Barber and to know so many of the neat things that happened while he was pastor here. And then uh, to know Lamar, too, and to get a real grip on the great things he did when he was here. In my previous church, um, it started in 1956, and there were, I think I was the eighth pastor, so the one there now is the ninth pastor. Glad he's still there, you know, glad he's getting to benefit from, uh, you know, the leadership of those of us before him. 
I was pastor 17 years. The longest before me was seven years, and the current pastor has a little bit of time to go before he gets to seven and then 17, and hope he, hope he breaks everything, you know, there, gets past all those things. But what I'm saying is there were five or six of my predecessors. At one time, all but one was alive, I think, you know, and now still about half of us of the nine are alive. And it kind of feels a little bit like a club, you know. We, we love those people. We love that church. We want it to prosper. We want it to do well. And I've delighted in the interactions I've had with the current pastor and, you know, sharing perspectives and praying for him. And I pray for him a lot. Um, all that to say, so when I became pastor here, three of the four pastors were alive. And now I'm the only one. And I was unprepared emotionally you know, last week for when Lamar did pass away and I got word about that. I was unprepared for the emotional toll of, uh, you know, how all of a sudden it felt pretty lonely in the Tabernacle Living Pastors Club. You know, of course, they're more alive than I am up there in heaven, you know, looking down. But uh, anyway, just waxing nostalgic a little bit about that. But it is tremendous to be a shepherd. Jesus is the over-shepherd. And uh, pray for this shepherd in these days uh, beyond the first three pastors' lives. Well, what we see here in Acts 20, verses 17 through 38, are intertwined traits of a true spiritual leader modeled by Paul. You know, you get a three, I think I've, I've got four things to tell you, but, you know, you get a three-legged stool, when you take one of the legs out, you got a problem, right? You, you need all three of the legs. And the, these, these traits that we're reading about now, even though there's four of them, they're intertwined, they go together, they need to be there uh, for, a, for a good ministry. And the first one... And I'm going to have to put this word, I'm going to have to spell this word for you up here on the board because um, it is a little bit of a hard one. Incarnational life and love. So I'll spell that out for you because that's a entirely too big a word, Pastor Danny. And just kind of different than we usually look at. Incarnational. Incarnational life and love. We get the word incarnation for what Jesus did for us when he left heaven. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and took up residence among us. So God became flesh. Jesus became flesh and took up residence and dwelt among us. We observed His glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the word incarnation means infleshment. Uh, it's the very, it's the very uh, thing that happened when the Creator stepped into creation the infleshment. So incarnation is a big word, but that's what it means. God became flesh to show His love, to model the Spirit-filled life, to make the sacrifice for our sins so those, that those who repent and believe would be saved. Uh, John 15, 13 says, No one has greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Paul told another church, he said, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And like Jesus, Paul had modeled incarnational life and love for the Ephesian elders. Not just teaching and then going home, but life together. Life together as we go and serve at this place or go and minister to people or do these things. Um, so incarnational life and love is uh, more than just, um, you know, uh, you have a job, you work it from 8 to 5, you go home, you don't go back till Monday if, you, if it's during the week. You know, I know shift workers have a slightly different, but, um, you know, Whatever your shift was at Goodyear, you probably didn't want to go around there much on your days off. <laughs> you know, 
Woohoo! See ya. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, so but um, a, a minister, a pastor, a shepherd taking care of sheep. Well, the sheep that's that's more twenty four seven. You know, and of course, the bigger a church gets, the more you need a team of people doing that. But Paul says, "I was with you. I lived among you." Verse eighteen, he says, "I was with you the whole time." Verse twenty, he talks about publicly and privately. He went house to house. Verse thirty one, he mentions night and day. So think of the sacrifice of Paul's time that was involved there, including his commitment to singleness for service. In 1 Corinthians, he reflects on the fact and says, you know, I could have gotten married somewhere along the line. Peter's got a wife. That's okay. And he mentioned, really, hey, all the other apostles have, he says, he basically refers to the fact that only he and Barnabas were single in pastoral service or missionary apostolic service at that point. Um, and so uh, he had given up even more of his time by not have, caring for a wife and family and things like that. And we're the beneficiaries of him uh, being that devoted to the Lord. And it's not that married people aren't devoted to the Lord. It's just, you know, that that's what he had done. And he's talking about those sacrifices here. He had modeled for them being a hard worker and being a giver, not a taker. Look at verse 33. I haven't coveted your money, your stuff. <laughs> verse 34. I work to provide what you could not. These hands have provided for my needs and for others with me. Paul's saying here, I wasn't a burden to you. I was a blessing. I didn't take from the weak. I helped the weak. Just like Jesus said, it's better to give than to receive. And Paul believed that. Now next week we'll talk about false teachers and somebody that uh, is incarnational among you, who lives his life among you, who, if his children are still in the home, raises his kids among you like Pastor Lamar did and all the different things. Inevitably, their actions show that they think it's more blessed to give than to receive. But next week we'll talk about false teachers, and inevitably false teachers are the opposite of that. They, their actions show they think it's more blessed to receive from the weak sheep than that they constantly fleece than to bless the sheep, right? And so that's a critical difference between a true teacher and a false teacher. Paul loved them, as had been seen in his prayers and his tears for them. We got a great testimony of that this past week. Verse 19, look at there, it says, With tears, tears. Verse 31, I warned each one of you with tears. Verse 36, there's corporate prayer. They're praying together, and there's a great deal of weeping with all of them. They loved this man, and he loved them. Beautiful, beautiful thing. So incarnational life and ministry. Another intertwined trait of a, of a good shepherd is humble service under the chief shepherd. So you want to get that word humble. Verse 19, Paul says he served the Lord with all humility. And of course, again, we think about Jesus Christ. I put here, I think, the verses for you, Philippians 2, 4 through 11. Um, Let's go ahead and turn there, Philippians 2, um, because this is the great passage that shows just how willing Christ was to humble himself and be a servant of us so that he could save us. And um, give you another big word here. Sometimes this passage is called the kenosis passage. Kenosis has 
in it the idea of emptying, how God emptied himself of his rights and privileges. He didn't stop being God, but he uh, did not use those things for his advantage while he was on earth. So Philippians 2 verse 4 says, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He couldn't lose being equal with God. He was the second person of the Trinity. Verse 7 but says, It made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. What a, what a humbling coming from heaven to earth. God stepping into time. The author of the play writing himself into the script. Verse 8 says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Uh, he would have humbled himself even if he just came down and gave us a great lecture. <laughs> um, even if he came down and we did treat him as a VIP on earth. God's on earth. He's going to talk to us for a few days. But he just kept going farther so that he could identify with every single human that ever lived. Humbled himself to the point of death. And a brutal, brutal, brutal death at that. I would hate to die in a plane crash, but uh, crucifixion's worse than a plane crash. You know, Jesus can identify with anyone and everyone. So, verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, when it says God highly exalted him, some uh, people think, oh, well, that's when, um, that's when uh, you know, Jesus became great. No, he always was great, and he was great by loving us enough to humble himself. He came down as the Son of God. Um, what went, when, it, when it says God raised him up and exalted him, when it says he exalted him, he went back to heaven as the Son of God. In John 17, he tells us, Father, I look forward to getting back up there with you and sharing the glory I had again with you from the, I had it with you from the foundation of the world. So the all-glorious God humbled himself, stepped into this sinful earth, didn't sin. And when he went back to heaven, he went back not just as the Son of God, but also as the Son of Man. Glorified human flesh was exalted to the right hand of the Father. And when Jesus comes back, he'll come back as the Son of God, Son of Man. He'll rule and reign. And, uh, but uh, that first visit here was all about humility and saving our souls, doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. That's why it's a donkey he rode into Jerusalem with, a beast of burden. There was work to do. He'll come back on a white horse as the conquering king. That's why he's compared to a lamb who was slaughtered. A lamb is humble compared to a lion. He'll come back as the lion uh, and judge. But he was the lamb in that first visit. And so we all that pastor and shepherd take our cue from the example of Christ. Jesus said, if I, your Lord and Savior, have washed your feet, I've set you an example. How do you know a good leader? Well, they're going to get in there and lead by serving. I've given you an example. I've washed your feet. Go and wash others' feet. Serve them. Meet the needs. It wasn't a ceremony he was calling for like the Lord's Supper or baptism, foot washing. Some denominations add in foot washing as a third ordinance to keep. But no, he was saying when the need has not been met and you can be in a room and meet that need, go ahead and do it, you know. Think about Harry and all those times he's mowed lawns for people and stuff and taking other, others. I think about Vicki and all the notes and things she writes to check up on people and all the ways uh, you guys serve Christ, all of you, you know, and it's just an inspiration. And you should be led by pastors that do the same thing. 
modeling that for the whole church. Leaders are under shepherds, under the chief shepherd. So we've got the incarnational life and love. You've got the humble service under the chief shepherd. The next one is perseverance. Perseverance. And uh, I, um, I'm not even sure I've got it spelled right here, so I'm not going to spell it for you. <laughs> perseverance amidst difficulties past, present, and future. Uh, people of God are known by persevering. Um, they keep showing up, they keep serving, they keep loving. In verse 19, Paul talks about how I kept back nothing that was, oh, I'm sorry, serving the Lord with all humility. So you got that. But then he says, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. So he talks about those trials, those plots that he faced. I think last week it was, we read um, in 2 Corinthians 11, where he goes over all the different things he'd faced and had to persevere through. It's hard when you get beat up to show back up again. You get that? They don't want me here. <laughs> and uh, one place we read about already in Acts, it says, uh, you know, he got a great beating there. So he continued on for three months. <laughs> you know? Other places, the climate was so hot, they wanted him to go on to the next. The disciples were like, Paul, for your own safety, go on. We need you. There's only one of you. You can come back. But uh, at least that one time, it says he stayed right there, you know. And uh, our trials might be different, but all true believers will have trials come. What are we to do when trials come? We're to persevere. We're to endure. We're to keep our hands on the plow. Um, I think it was Mark Dever uh, used to tell all the young preacher guys that he influenced, your job is to preach and pray, love and stay. Preach and pray, love and stay until you're sure that God's calling you on to the next place. So Paul was not merely optimistic that because he loved Jesus, things were bound to get better. Because look at verses 22 and 23. He says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things which that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Now, you got that there? In chapter 21, this prophet's going to come along named Agabus, and he's going to predict that Paul will suffer as he goes forward. He wouldn't tell anything, Paul anything he didn't know. When the others in that room heard Agabus say that, they're like, Paul, don't go on to Jerusalem. You're going to suffer there. They're going to persecute you. He's like, I already knew that. I'm going anyway. So catch that timing there. He already knew it. The Holy Spirit's already been confirming to him one thing after another, that to keep going down this road toward Roman trials... Uh, and that include the ones back in Jerusalem that hated him for sharing the gospel, that's what that was going to mean. And he keeps going down that journey anyway, just like Jesus. Matthew 16, Peter is able to give the glad confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who do people say that I am? Oh, a prophet, this, that. And who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And right after that, it says Jesus told them for the first time, look, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be um, betrayed, I'm going to be arrested, handed over to the chief priests and then the authorities. They're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise again on the third day. Matthew's gospel says it three different times. Mark's got it in there repeatedly. Luke's has it in there. It just is a common theme that this is coming. Jesus knew it was, and he did it for us. Paul knows trouble awaits in the future. He keeps on going. At Paul's salvation in Acts 9, God had said, I will show him how much he must suffer. Paul was not trying to stay out of trouble, but to continue to get in trouble for the right reasons. And I've joked with you before, that's what I'm trying to do too, you know. Uh, the Baptist greeting, he's staying out of trouble, right? Staying out of trouble, right? We're all going to be in trouble. Get in trouble for the right reasons, right? Um, man, 
There's uh, all kinds of trouble around us. Get in trouble for the right reasons. Um, one of my dear friends back up in the valley, he was one of our elders at the church, kind of like board of directors. We've got the same thing here with the board of directors, but um, Mike Beverly, a neat man, still alive in his 80s now. And uh, I just learned so much from him. I, I said one time, Mike, um, what's the average person that we minister to? How are they trying to get through life? And he said, Danny, the average person is trying to get through life without messing up too bad. I don't think he was wrong. I think, you know, most people don't have a vision uh, for their life of, uh, you know, really all that they can do for Christ as part of a, a wonderful church, as part of uh, taking uh, the opportunities to courageously uh, talk to somebody when they get a chance and things like that. Um, they're so afraid of uh, offending a neighbor or a family member that they're silent when there's opportunities to speak. Um, and uh, sometimes it's hard to be that guy, that gal that speaks up, you know. Um, and it's hard to do it in a gracious way. That's why most of your rebukey type things probably should happen one-on-one, -on -one, and none of it happened with the online controversies and fights people get in and stuff like that, you know. But um, God has more for His people than just surviving. He wants us to thrive in Him and His love and realize that together all we're doing for the Lord, affecting the ends of the earth with our praying, our giving, when we can go, when we send others because we can't go, and all the different things. And it is a wonderful, beautiful life when you uh, think of it as a, as a treasure hunt. You know, I am storing up treasure in heaven every day by deeds, by giving, by this, by that, by praying. Uh, Matthew 6, he told us, God will reward that time of prayer for His kingdom work. Your Father who sees in secret will reward. Don't be showing your prayers before others. Go into your private room and pray. He said the same thing related to giving. And of course, uh, there's so much we can do as we talk to people about Jesus. So um, look at verse 24. He said, I count my life of no value to myself, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So neat. And that reminds me of Jesus' words in John 14 through 17. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I'm leaving, but I'm going to send you a comforter. You're not orphans who never get to see your daddy again. I'm coming to get you. I'm preparing a place for you. I'm going to come again and receive you to myself. Uh, reminds us of Paul's words 10 years after this to Timothy in 2 Timothy, uh, where he says such neat things about, you know, my life is poured out, uh, you know, and, and each of us as believers should have as our desire to finish well. Hmm. Some of what we're called to endure may be very hard, but the eternal reward awaits. So we've got the incarnational life and love. We've got the humble service. We've got perseverance. And then the last thing is proclaiming the whole counsel of God in public and private. These things make a minister and they're things we look for when we're thinking about a man of God to serve us as ministers, but really emblematic of our own lives too. Um, proclaiming the whole counsel of God in public and in private. 
not just the things we like to say, the good news, but the bad news that's the context for understanding the good news. Look at verse 20. Paul says, I kept back nothing. Another translation says, I did not shrink back from proclaiming to you anything that was profitable. I did it in public. I did it from house to house. And I love those words, I kept back nothing. Or the other translation says, I did not shrink back. Some preachers do shrink back. Some preachers do hold it back. Uh, they tell people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. Paul said, it's going to get worse, Timothy. As the end times come, people are going to want to go where they get their ears itched and, you know, tickled and stuff like that, you know. And uh, I can't help but think about Joel Osteen, uh, his interview years and years ago with Larry King. Maybe you saw it. Um, Larry King said, does an atheist or Jew need to trust Jesus to go to heaven? And here's what Osteen said, and he's been saying it ever since. It's not like he was misquoted. This is who he is. I'm not going to get into that, Larry. <laughs> I just want to tell people that God's for them. And the problem is there's too many preachers that have modeled themselves after Joel Osteen, and they say, well, I just want to tell people that God's for them. And they often tell people promises of God as if the person can claim that promise without repentance and faith. You know, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And he'll give that promise out to somebody that's not repented and trusted Christ. Well, no, God's not with that person, not in the ways with a believer. You know, um, so he wants to avoid telling people they're sinners who need to repent and they'll go to hell. He wants to proclaim the easy things to preach without preaching the truths that sinners hate to hear. And Paul here, he basically says, look, I didn't shrink back. I didn't tell you just what you wanted to hear, but what you needed to hear. And that's what a true shepherd does. Look at verse 21. He says, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. The core of a Bible-based message proclaiming the truth is proclaiming the truth and calling for repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It includes both, it involves both, that's your fill-in-the-blank, both the warnings and the comforts the Bible gives. <laughs> I like to say it like this, repent is not a four-letter word, but hell is. <laughs> <laughs> so what does it mean to repent? Well, we've talked about it before. You change your mind. The word mean, repentance means metanoia. It's change of mind. You change your mind about the truth of God's Word. You used to think it was a work of men. Now you know it's the very words of God to us. You change your mind about its authority in your life. You're not the authority. You're not the Lord. God's Word is the authority, and Jesus is Lord. It's definitions of the things you and I need to repent of, need to be accepted. It's a change of mind. It also leads then to a change of heart and a change of will where you're going to follow rather than reject the leadership of Christ. Sometimes I say you can't be forgiven of sin you haven't repented of. Um, forgiveness of sin is everything to a believer. It is so great. But there's a lot of presumptuous people that want to claim forgiveness who've never repented. And even worse, many of them don't agree with God saying it's sin. <laughs> so yeah, I've received God's forgiveness, but you still uh, don't accept how He defines human sexuality or how He defines something else in your life or something like that. Well, no, by definition, you remain under God's wrath because by definition, you have not said the same thing. That's what confession means. Uh, um, homologeo is the word for confession, to say the same word about your sin that God does. Um, so, don't you love Romans 10? It says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. 
One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness. One confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. And that was Paul's message. Verse 24, testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Verse 32, this message is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. Now, the message of repentance, what it does is it tears down what shouldn't be in our lives. And the message of grace received through faith builds up what should be there. So God strips us clean through the knowledge of ourselves as wicked sinners before Him. And then we look into our judge's eyes. He's got us dead to rights. And that's when we see the Savior's face looking back at us. I took that on myself, Danny. And now I can rebuild your life around my truth. Let me. Now let's be clear here. What God is not with God, sorry, so this is your fill in the next fill in the blank. With God, it's not merely a matter of preaching style, whether a preacher speaks the whole truth or not. It's a clear expectation of preachers to both warn of sin's consequences and comfort repenters and believers with gospel hope. Those who don't preach both are going to be judged severely as false teachers. Now, what happens when you do preach the whole counsel of God? when not only are you willing to uh, preach from every part of the Bible and uh, explain um, our need to turn to Christ for forgiveness, when you preach the whole counsel of God then um, that involves both warnings and promises and comfort to those who do repent, uh, what becomes true of you? Well, what Paul says in verse 26 and 27, look at it again. Paul says, because I've done this, I preach the kingdom of God to you. I preach repentance and faith to you. I preach the whole counsel of God to you. Verse 26, he says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So, so um, what is in Paul's mind as he uses these word about, words about being innocent of the blood? It's the Old Testament teaching on the prophet as, can anybody help me fill in the blank? The prophet as a what? Watchman. A watchman on the wall. He uses the very language that's used twice in Ezekiel. But let's look at it in Ezekiel 33. So from Acts, turn back to the left to the book of Ezekiel and go to chapter 33. And as you're finding it there in your Bible, the heading in the New King James that I'm reading from says the appointment of Ezekiel as watchman. <laughs> so that's why we say watchman there. Okay, so I'm going to read the first 11 verses. We're pretty close to the end here, but it says, Again, the word of the Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people, and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman. Now, here's what would happen. You'd be enlisted as a watchman. The city would have walls. Within the walls, there'd be towers going up higher than the wall. And they'd, they'd put a watchman there who would look. He'd be looking out. What he'd be looking out for? Danger danger. Enemy forces coming toward the gate to try to take on the city, to try to tear down the walls, get over the walls, hurt the people, etc. So a watchman was there to look for signs and things that could be trouble for the people that he was in essence taking care of inside, right? So um, 
When he looks out, verse 3, and sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, verse 4, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. So, trouble's coming. I blow the trumpet. The Davidsons need to get out. You know, they need to take warning. Let's say that, uh, you know, Wesley hits the snooze button and turns over. That's on him. That's on. He was warned. The trumpet blew. My job on the, as the watchman was to blow the trumpet. And Wesley says, get out of bed and act on the information, right? Um, verse 5, he heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning shall save his life. So uh, in addition to whatever I'm going to be judged for, part of my job, you know, this is why it says in James 3.1, don't let many of you become teachers because it's a stricter judgment. Uh, many people see some of the perks preachers have, and they go, I want to be a preacher. I want in on that action, you know. And uh, they, they uh, maybe haven't had models of, of uh, uh, you know, a godly, sacrificing preacher or whatever and things like that. But um, so uh, th- there's a stricter judgment, James 3.1 says, for teachers when they take on that role to be the one to teach. You can't just teach the positive stuff. You've got to do the calls to repentance, too, and warn people. Um, Verse 6, but if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hands. So if I fail to give our brother the warning that he needs, his blood is on me. Blood on, you know, in that case, we're using Wesley's name. Wesley's blood will be on my hands because I didn't warn him. Uh, I didn't do my job. I didn't do my job. And, you know, hey, you put yourself out there as publicly as Joel Osteen has, and he's saying that I want to tell people God's form, but doesn't want to call people to repent. Imagine the blood of people on his hands. And I say this reservedly because I'm given a name, you know. But imagine the blood on a false teacher's hands uh, in judgment before God because they sugarcoated the need to repent and said people were okay without repentance. And now think about all these modern denominations that aren't telling people the truth about God's plan for sexuality. That are not, you know, you don't need to repent of homosexuality. In fact, you can be one of our bishops or leaders. Oh my goodness, the blood is on those hands. You got to be more concerned about what God thinks than what man thinks. Amen. Amen. The fear of God is caring more what God thinks than what we thinks or what feel we think or what feels right. Verse seven. So you son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, a wicked man, you shall surely die. And you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I require at your hands. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity. But you have delivered your soul. You did your job. You did your job, Ezekiel. You did your job, watchman. Therefore you, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you say, If our transgressions and our sins lie upon us, and we pine away in them, how can we then live? Say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? So thankful for preachers like Lamar Mooneyham and R.J. Barber and others we've known, Jerry Falwell and uh, Billy Graham and others throughout the decades and centuries, Mordecai Ham and you know, going all the way back to the early church who did not shrink back, but instead preached the whole counsel of God. 
and uh, they will not be guilty of the blood of those who failed to repent because they did warn them. And the good news is they will have delivered many people uh, to spiritual life. Being a pastor or elder, it's a serious matter. It requires spiritual maturity, overseeing. That includes a watchman's role, warning people that often are angry that you warned them, and a shepherd's role of sacrificial love to sheep who are prone to wander. It's all those things and sometimes more. Pastor James of Jerusalem said those words I mentioned earlier, James 3.1, not many should become teachers knowing that we'll receive a stricter judgment. So, in these verses that we've looked at today, Paul lets them know that his work in Ephesus is done, but theirs is going to continue. <laughs> they will likely never see him again as he pushes forward to Rome and Spain with the gospel. So, look what he says in verse 28. He says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. My job's done, Paul said. Lamar's job's now done. Danny's continues. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. Be on guard for yourselves, be on guard for all the flock. Church leaders do have a difficult task. We'll look at it more next week in guarding uh, folks in the church from false teaching. Sometimes it's from without, as, we meant, as we're going to see next week as we look again in this text. But He also said, watch out, even some of the people that you really like from within can rise up and start believing things they shouldn't have believed. And that, of course, is clearly told us that in the last days it'll be even more prevalent. In verse 31, he says it again, be on the alert. Sometimes pastors care more about people's souls than they do. So, uh, but you guys are among those who care about people's souls as well. So care for those souls. Call people to repentance in life. Call them off of the highway to hell. Call them to repent and live. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wishes everybody would turn and live. And so say it with love, say it with tears, um, and uh, we'll win some to the Lord. There are people in this city that will listen, and even if they don't, we'll have done our job to share with people what they need to know. So we've been in the watchman's role. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.